Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning, this episode includes disturbing content, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and rape, and may be triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Old cemeteries are creepy. I think we can all agree on that. But although we associate cemeteries with death, it isn't often that death happens inside of a cemetery itself let alone a brutal murder. Jessica Lynn Keene was born on September 24, 1975. She was raised in Columbus, Ohio, and she was a happy child and grew up into a driven teenager who was an honor student and on the cheerleading squad. She loved singing and entertaining her friends, and she had a deep love for animals. She dreamed of one day working with animals as a career. When she was 15 years old, she met an older boy named Sean, and she quickly fell head over heels for the 18-year-old high school dropout. They started dating, and she spent an increasing amount of time with Sean and not doing her studies and her schoolwork. It wasn't long before his bad boy ways started to rub off onto Jessica, and her grades really started to slip. Her mother, Rebecca, saw that Sean was a bad influence on her daughter, and so she forbade her daughter from talking or seeing Sean until Jessica's grades started to improve. Before meeting Sean, Jessica's grades easily would have garnered her a scholarship, and Rebecca's mother wanted to ensure that Jessica would be able to get her grades back up to that level so that she could afford to go to a good college and basically just be set up for a good life. Unfortunately, Jessica did not respond well to being forced apart from Sean. Her grades continued to fall, and she dropped out of the cheerleading squad altogether. On March 4, 1991, feeling like they were losing their daughter and not knowing where else to turn, Jessica's parents brought her to a group home for troubled teens called the Huckleberry House. The Huck House, as it was referred to by residents and staff, offered two weeks of housing for teens, and they focused on therapy sessions to work through issues with both the teens there and their families. And honestly, I do commend the parents for seeking outside help for their daughter and being open to going to therapy. I'm not sure that a group home for troubled teens was necessarily the right move, but I don't know all of the circumstances surrounding their situation. And for them, at least they were seeking outside help. They were at least trying to uh, kind of set their daughter back on the right track. I think that too many parents, uh, especially in the early 90s, would be afraid of how it would look for their child to go into counseling or feel like if they put their child into therapy, it was because they failed in some way. But acknowledging that you need help and seeking that out is something that should always be commended. 
The Hug House is actually still in operation today, and it continues to offer temporary housing and free counseling services to teens and their families in a variety of circumstances. While at the Huckleberry House, Jessica stayed in contact with Sean, but their relationship was rockier than ever. On March 15th, Jessica called Sean while she was at the Huck House. The couple got into a heated argument, which was overheard by people at the house, and the couple broke up. Jessica was visibly and understandably upset after this phone conversation. So she decided that she would take a trip to the mall in order just to calm down. She didn't have a car, but there was a bus stop just a few blocks from the Huck House, and it would take her pretty close to the mall, so that's what she decided she was going to do. She let some people know where she was going, and she walked over to the bus stop. It was at this bus stop on the corner of North 4th Street and East 11th Street that she was seen alive for the last time, around 6 p.m. on March 15th. When Jessica didn't return to the Huck House by evening curfew, they contacted her family just to see if maybe her family knew where she was. But they didn't. They hadn't seen her. They hadn't heard from her. They didn't know where she was. At that point, they contacted the police, and the search for Jessica began. Her family and friends searched near the Huck House and the mall that she was headed to on March 15th, but really, no sign of her was found until two days later and 20 miles from where they were searching. On March 17th, Jessica Lynn Keene's body was discovered near the back fence of the Chapel Hill Cemetery in Plain City. She was naked except for one sock, she had been raped, and she was badly beaten. The murder weapon turned out to be a 70-pound broken headstone that was found near her body. It was determined that she had likely been held captive for several hours after her kidnapping, and she died sometime in the early morning hours of March 16th. When investigators checked the grounds of the cemetery, they discovered knee imprints behind several other headstones, indication that Jessica had attempted to hide from her attacker before being caught up with. The cemetery is in a very rural area. There's no streetlights around, so it was likely very dark. This part of the cemetery also has a lot of very tall trees, so that would have covered any sort of moonlight that would be able to get through. Investigators theorized that she saw the light from a nearby farmhouse and she attempted to run to it, but instead she hit the back fence of the cemetery that she likely didn't see because it was so dark out. Her attacker then likely heard the noise and caught up with her, beating her to death with the broken headstone and leaving her body behind. Special Agent Costas, who was investigating the murder, stated, quote, we do know that she hid behind this headstone. That was based on the crime scene investigators who found her knee print in the soft ground behind the headstone. We're pretty certain that Jessica saw the light from the farmhouse. And that's what she turned to run for when she collided with the fence post in the back of the cemetery. Because it's so dark out here at night, she was not able to see the fence back here and collided with this fence post. Once she collided with the fence post, she knocked herself down and at that point, her assailant was able to catch up with her. This is the spot where she was ultimately killed. I've never been so passionate about anything that I've ever worked on in my life. 
The thought of this girl, 15 years old, who had such a bright future, being murdered in such a horrible, horrible fashion, you cannot help but want to do everything humanely possible to find out who did this. End quote. A little bit of history on the Chapel Hill Cemetery before we move on. This is one of the oldest cemeteries in the Columbus area, with graves that date back to the mid-1800s. It's actually designated as a historical place by the Ohio Historical Society due to the fact that the first white settler of Madison County, whose name is Jonathan Adler, he's actually buried at this cemetery. So that's how old this place is. Jonathan Adler actually has a kind of interesting story. He was kidnapped at age seven by Native Americans during a conflict between the white settlers and the indigenous people in the area. An indigenous family adopted him, and when he got older, he served as a translator and sort of an ambassador between the white settlers and the indigenous people. The whole cemetery is surrounded by a low fence, about three to four feet in height. The back fence, where Jessica was found murdered, is mostly made up of solid wood posts and thin wire, which would be impossible to see in the dark of night. After Jessica's body was discovered, the medical examiner recovered a semen sample from her body, further proof that she had been raped within a few hours of her murder. In 1991, DNA analysis was still in its infancy, but it could be used to at least rule out a suspect based on things like blood type or your status as a secretor versus a non-secretor. Being a secretor versus a non-secretor basically means if your blood antigens that contain information about like your blood type, if that is secreted into your other bodily fluids, like your tears or in this case, semen. So if you are a secretor, then we would be able to know what blood type you have based on a semen sample. But if you're a non-secretor, we would not be able to know what kind of blood type you had based on other types of bodily fluids. Uh, most people are secretors. I think it's about 80% of the population, um, if not a little bit more. So uh, in so for the mar- most part, uh, even in 1991, we would be able to at least narrow down the pool of people of who this sample came from. The first and most obvious suspect in this case was Jessica's ex-boyfriend, Sean. The pair had just broken up right before she had gone missing. He was already a source of conflict within the Keene family. He was a high school dropout. So, you know, he was kind of the obvious source for investigators to go after right away. But using the DNA evidence from Jessica's body, Sean was conclusively ruled out as a suspect. And he maintained that he had nothing to do with Jessica's death, that he would never hurt her. Yes, they had broken up, but he didn't want to murder her or hurt her at all. And he didn't know what had happened to her or who had done this. While the investigation continued, Jessica's family erected a wooden cross at Foster Chapel Cemetery where her body had been discovered. The simple cross was placed at the wooden post that she likely ran into while attempting to flee from her attacker. The cross bears her name and the date that she was murdered. Investigators focused on people that knew Jessica at first. They figured that if Jessica was comfortable getting into this person's vehicle, she likely knew them or at least had like met them or seen them around previously. She was a smart girl. She had a good head on her shoulders. So they really didn't think that she would just get into a stranger's car. 
They talked to people at the Huck House. They collected DNA samples from those that they felt might have been involved. But really, they made little progress on finding her killer. After some time passed, the investigators ran out of leads and they hit a dead end. For years, the case was essentially cold. It was featured on an episode of Unsolved Mysteries on June 4th, 1999. But unfortunately, this didn't garner any new leads that would solve the crime. In 2006, investigators decided to take a fresh look at the case and resubmit all of the evidence to the crime lab for a second look. By this time, you know, DNA uh, was much more understood. We could gain a lot more information from DNA samples and uh, match it much more easily. So by re-going through the evidence, by resubmitting the DNA, they were hopeful that maybe they could at least get some more information. Finally, 17 years after her murder, in 2008, investigators got a match on the DNA evidence in the National DNA Database called CODIS. The DNA belonged to a felon named Marvin Lee Smith. Smith had been arrested before Jessica's murder for attempted rape and kidnapping of two other Columbus area women. He was out on a bond when he committed the murder against Jessica, so he had been arrested let go on bond, and before he even faced his trial for the attack on these two other women, he killed Jessica. He was convicted of the two attacks in August of 1991, five months after killing Jessica, and he served a four-year sentence before he was released on parole. In 2000, Smith was found to have violated his parole when he was living in North Carolina, and so they sent him back to prison in Ohio to serve a short sentence for violating this parole before he was released again. Due to laws that had gone into effect since his first release, all felons at that point that were serving time in jail were forced to submit DNA samples that were then loaded into CODIS, which is that uh, national DNA database. There, they could be compared against DNA evidence found at other crime scenes. Now, there wasn't an immediate match on his DNA when he was sent back to prison in 2000 when he submitted his DNA. Because the, the software wasn't that complex enough, it wasn't complex enough to you know, store all of the unmatched crime scene DNA and kind of constantly run it against every new CODIS entry. Investigators basically had to re-enter the crime scene DNA data and wait for a technician to make the match in the database. It's not as simple as like making a Google search and you get your results right away. It was still a little bit more complex than that. It still took a technician taking a look at it uh, and comparing the evidence and the DNA that was submitted from the perpetrator. Um, So it did take a little bit of time, but ultimately they got their match in Marvin Lee Smith. On April 9th, 2008, Marvin Lee Smith was arrested at his home in North Carolina for the murder of Jessica Lynn Keene. Although prosecutors in the case initially sought the death penalty, they ultimately entered into a plea deal with Smith. He would plead guilty and basically give them the information regarding the attack, and he would be spared from the death penalty. This also spared the Keene family from having to go into trial and hear all of the details in a very public setting, which can be absolutely traumatizing for any family to have to go through. Smith told investigators that he didn't know Jessica before he picked her up from the bus stop. 
that she was upset and that she got into his car. He had raped her and kept her naked while he was driving along County Highway 7 when she managed to escape from his car and she ran into the cemetery. She tried to hide. She attempted to hide behind those headstones like the evidence had pointed to. But ultimately, when she hit the back fence, he heard her and that was his chance to strike. He grabbed a headstone from the nearby grave and beat her over the head with it, the force of which broke the headstone in half. He confirmed that he had acted alone in the kidnapping, rape, and murder. No one else knew that he had done this. Um, The ex-boyfriend had no relation to this man whatsoever. He had truly acted alone, and it was just a crime of opportunity when he saw Jessica at the bus stop, vulnerable and alone. Marvin Lee Smith received a sentence of life in prison with the possibility of parole after 30 years based on the plea deal. He will be eligible for parole in 2038. Thank you for listening to this episode of Morbid Tourism about Foster Chapel Cemetery. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to Morbid Tourism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please leave us a rating or review. Let us know what you think. New episodes will be released weekly. In between episodes, you can always visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. Follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, Unsolved Mysteries, ForgottenOH.com, and the Huckleberry House website. <laughs>